Well, it was the late 17th century, and the son of the English Baptist pastor, Benjamin Keach, had decided to come to America. Elias Keach didn't know what he would do for money when he arrived in America. He decided he would be a minister like his dad to support himself. So he dressed in black, as you did that, that day, those days, and wore a band in order to pass for a minister because he was not a minister. There was one catch, one big catch. He wasn't a Christian, but he thought this would be a good way to start making money. And this uh, trick was successful. Many people came to hear the young man preach, maybe because of his father, because his father was well known. And he performed the task pretty well through much of his first sermon. People were impressed by the words that he said, by the exposition, etc., etc. Then, towards the end of the sermon, he stopped short. He looked like a man astonished. Motionless, he stood in his tracks. His hands were trembling, and some people even said he had tears in his eyes. The audience squirmed uncomfortably. They didn't know what to do with this. They concluded that he had been seized with a disorder at that very moment. But this was the moment of his conversion. This was the moment of his conversion. Elias Keach was converted by his own preaching. While he was preaching the gospel, he was converted by his own words. And this is a rather unique story, not quite ideal for conversions. You don't really want non-Christians up there preaching the gospel message and getting converted under their own message. But the point is that God loves to work in surprising and unlikely ways. He loves to do what seems to us almost like the impossible. Because when he does so, it indicates it's God's work, not our work. The book of Acts in a similar way, is actually filled with surprising stories. One scholar even said that this theme of surprising conversions, which is kind of going to be the banner under which we put this whole text, surprising conversions is one of the most neglected themes in all of Acts. This morning, we will look at one of these surprising conversions of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26 through 40. So we see three, and we're just going to walk through the text. We see three things in this text in narrative order, a surprising meeting, a surprising savior, and a surprising baptism. A surprising meeting, a surprising savior, and a surprising baptism. So first, we see a surprising meeting in eight, chapter 8, verses 26 through 29. Look down there at those verses again with me, 8, 26 through 29. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, and he said, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he went up, and there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The, the spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. Well, we see a few things here in this text. First, we see this is not Philip's initiative. Philip has been introduced in Acts chapter 7 as a Hellenistic witness who has gone out to the nations. He went north to Samaria first, and now he's going south to this desert road. But you can see here, it's not Philip's idea to go here. It's the angel of the Lord that tells Philip to go south to the desert road. Consistently throughout Acts, 
It's God himself or a messenger of God who pushes people to places they wouldn't otherwise go. So as I just mentioned earlier, he's in Samaria. And right after this, we see Paul converted. We see the surprising conversion of, of Paul himself on the Damascus Road. Right after that, we see Peter being pushed through a vision to go to Cornelius, this Gentile centurion. And then later on in Acts, we actually see Paul's work frustrated in Asia. He wants to go throughout Asia, and the Spirit says, nope, don't go any, any over here. You need to go over to Macedonia and Achaia. You need to go other places. So we see that this is God's idea, not Philip. Philip's not like, I have a good idea. Let's go down south. Let's go share with this Ethiopian eunuch. No, it's God. The angel of the Lord came to him and said, you go here. Second, we see that Philip is obedient. Philip is obedient. I love this simple phrase, right, at the beginning of verse, 7, 20, uh, verse 27, where he says, so he went up. So he went up. The angel of the Lord tells him, time to go south to this desert road, and Philip just very simply says, yes, that's where I will go. I will go up to this desert road. And third, maybe most importantly, in verse 27, we are introduced to the man Philip meets on the road. Now, Luke spends a lot of time describing what sort of person this is, so I'm going to spend a lot of time describing what sort of person this is and what a surprising meeting this is. We get five descriptions of this man, and the point is his otherness. He's different than Philip in almost every way. But we get five descriptions. He lists his sexuality, his ethnicity, his gender, his vocation, and his loyalties. Okay? So I'm going to go through all of those because all of these are important. Because the point is the otherness of this Ethiopian eunuch. So first, he's identified according to his sex. and He's labeled a man. Uh, in the CSB, it says an Ethiopian man. Actually, in many translations, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here, it doesn't have the label man. But that is there in the Greek. So he's an Ethiopian man. And that word actually comes first in the Greek text. Some take it as an adjective, Ethiopian man. Some take it as a man, an Ethiopian. Uh, this sex term, or being a man, actually is going to become very important as the narrative goes on. So I'm just going to put a placeholder there and say he is identified as a man. That's who he is. He's an Ethiopian man. Second, he's described by his ethnicity. He's an Ethiopian. Ethiopian, also called Cush in the Old Testament, was not our modern-day Ethiopia, but more likely northern Africa, somewhere in northern Africa. Cushites, or Ethiopians, came from Noah's son, Ham, who looked on his father's nakedness, if you remember that story in the Old Testament. The point of him being from Ethiopia is that he's from a remote land, according to the scriptures. It's far away. It's not near Israel. So if you look at a text like Ezekiel 29.10, this is what the Lord says. I will turn the land of Egypt into ruins. So Egypt is Africa as well. A desolate waste from Migdol to Syene. And then it says, as far as the border of Cush, Ethiopia. So like, as far as we can get away, that's Cush. That's far away. The point is, it's, it's, it's a long distance away. Ethiopia is other. It's not near, okay? Ethiopians were also dark-complexioned people. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? No. So he's a dark-complected person. So he's a man. He's an Ethiopian. 
Third, he's labeled a eunuch. Eunuch. This means he's emasculated. Now, this actually becomes, and this is important, the most important term for Luke in telling the story. And I think this is missed a lot. He will drop all the other labels of this man through the rest of the narrative. But five times in this narrative, he just simply calls him the eunuch, the eunuch, the eunuch. So 834, 836, 838, 839. Five times in this narrative, he calls him the eunuch. So we should call this story the story of the eunuch or the Ethiopian eunuch and not just the story of the Ethiopian, just to be clear. I was actually looking at um, the CSB, the conversion of the Ethiopian official. Ooh, kind of missed it there, right, in terms of the title. The eunuch, that's his main title that he gives him, okay? This is important because we mainly, typically, think of this story in terms of ethnicity, but the eunuch is what rises to, to the most important point for Luke, okay? But what, what does it mean to be a eunuch in that day? So kind of three subpoints. What does it mean to be a eunuch? Well, how did people view eunuchs in that time? First, to be a eunuch was to be someone who would have no genealogy. No genealogy. That's a big deal in that day, to have no children. This was a shameful thing in that day, but rulers often viewed eunuchs as especially trustworthy because they would have no genealogy. They have no family. They could not reproduce, so they would actually serve another king. Second, the eunuchs were viewed, and this gets a little bit into historical information, but I think it's important for our purposes here, as effeminate. They were viewed as effeminate. I could go through a lot of data here, but let me just give you two quotes. Two quotes. Philo writes that eunuchs are neither male nor female, for they are incapable of giving or receiving seed. Josephus urges the audience to drive off those who have deprived themselves of their manhood because their soul has become effeminate. So eunuchs were viewed as no genealogy, and they were viewed as effeminate. Third, the eunuch could not enter the temple of the Lord because they were disfigured. A eunuch could not enter the temple of the Lord because they were disfigured. Deuteronomy 23.1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. They cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Leviticus 21, 18 through 24, speaks of those who have a blemish, that they may not enter the presence of the Lord. So, so who are eunuchs in this time? How were they viewed? Eunuch could have no children, they would be viewed as effeminate, and they were viewed as blemished, and they could not enter the temple of the Lord. Okay, so fourth, the fourth description now we're moving on to the fourth description that this man is given. The eunuch is described as an official of Candace's treasury. In fact, he's in charge of all her treasury. This man, in other words, was well-to-do. He was rich. He was privileged in his place where he was from. He was not just well-to-do, but he was educated. He could read, as we're about to find out, a Torah scroll, and he possessed a Torah scroll, which at that time is very unlikely to possess that. He's riding a chariot, he works for this queen, and he's the head of all of her treasury, and he's reading a Torah scroll. So he's very well-to-do, he's very well-educated. So in, in some contexts, he might be very highly prized, in other contexts, he might be looked at as other and not accepted. So 
what we call the characterization of this man is almost confusing because so much is going on with him. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's educated, but then according to Jews, he can't enter the temple Lord, and he's viewed in culture as effeminate, and he has no genealogy, so eunuchs were very strange figures back then. Fifth and finally, we learn that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. This man is what we would call a God-fearer. He worshiped Yahweh but could not fully participate in the Jewish rituals because of his Gentile and eunuch status. All this amounts to Philip being led to a very surprising figure. Wow, he is other in almost every sense except that he worships Yahweh. He wants to go to the temple. He's attracted to the Jewish faith. There is no similarity besides that fact between this man and Philip on a surface level except that he is interested in Yahweh. Now, he must be introduced to Jesus. Now, just stepping back from this scene, we can point out that it is important in all of our mission and evangelism talk that this is God's plan first. This is God's plan first, not ours. It's God's plan to compel people to go to people and places that they would otherwise not go. Philip would not naturally go to this man. To spread this message of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, his rule. And this brings us to an important point. Mission doesn't start with us. It just doesn't start with us. It starts with God and what God is doing in this world. God wants to welcome this man. Philip willingly goes, but it's very easy for us to get all this mission talk backwards and say, go, you go do this. And that's true, we do need to go and do these things. But we're going because God has said, I want to do this. I want to do this. This is first and foremost about what God is doing in this world. We get to participate and join God in what he is doing in this world. And that, that's really important because our churches could drop dead. Our denominations could drop dead. The American church could drop dead. And God would still make a great name for himself. God would still make a great name for himself. Malachi 1.11 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, God's name will be great among the nations. It's not based on the success of our church or your evangelism program or your personal evangelism program. God's name will be great among the nations. And we do get to participate in that. God doesn't need us in his mission. He just doesn't need us. But he loves us enough to allow us to participate with him in what he's doing in this world. And that should give us an impetus to actually join him in doing what he's doing. Because he's going to do it no matter what. He's going to call all nations to himself. Don't you want to be a part of that? But we also see in this text that Philip is obedient. Oftentimes we feel a prod from the spirit to go somewhere, to say something, to talk to someone. And we suppress it. And we're like, oh. No, I don't want to do that. But Philip says, I'm going to go up. I'm going to go up. This text reminds us that it's often the most unlikely people that God loves to show his power in. So when you think, "Mm, I'm not sure, that's where God wants to work. He wants to show you, I can do what you can't imagine. And that's what he does for Philip. So we've seen the surprising meeting between Philip and this Ethiopian unit. Second, 
we see a surprising Savior. He's introduced to a surprising Savior in 8, 30 through 35. When Philip ran up to it, the chariot, he heard this eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, the eunuch says, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the scripture passage that he was reading was this, Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that scripture. So this is the scene. The eunuch is in the chariot, going back home, reading the Isaiah scroll, and Philip is shoved up next to that that scene by the Spirit. He runs up to the chariot, and he asks him, what are you reading, and do you understand what you're reading? Notice he just asks a question, just to introduce the conversation. What are you doing? What are you reading? Do you understand it? And the eunuch says, no, I don't understand what I'm reading. I'm reading Isaiah 53, which is a text about the suffering servant, and I don't understand who it refers to. You can't understand the scriptures unless you understand who it refers to. And so Philip takes this text and he goes, that text is about Jesus. All these texts are about Jesus. And from that text, he explains the good news to the eunuch. Now, for our purposes, I just want to look more closely at the text the eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Two surprising things about this text. First, it focuses on Jesus' humiliation. His humiliation. He was led like a sheep to be killed. He was silent before his killers. Isaiah is pointing forward to the cross and Jesus as that sacrificial lamb. And embedded in this idea is the idea of substitution, that he's taking the place of others. He's being that lamb that is being sacrificed on behalf of others. Second, it's a text of lamentation. Justice is denied to this man. He needs justice, but it's denied to him. Who can describe his generation? He will have no children because his life is taken away from the earth. So it's all about Jesus' humiliation and a lamentation for that. Now, that might not seem surprising to us in church. But remember, the Messiah was thought to be a warrior figure who would come and ransom Israel. And the text that leads the eunuch to the truth of the gospel is a text about a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah. A lamentation for his death. But we can dig even a little bit deeper. There's actually clues in this text that Jesus is being linked to this eunuch. Because in this text, he comes, Jesus comes before the shear, which is actually the one who cut him. So you have some correspondence with the eunuch. And not only that, it says, who will describe his generation? Remember what I said about eunuchs. They have no genealogy. So in some sense, there's a tie between the eunuch and Jesus in this text. Who will describe his generation? Jesus will have no generation, it seems like, because his life is being taken from the earth. But what's so amazing in this text is that we know because Jesus' life was taken from the earth, he actually is going to have a large family. And so in Isaiah, it's a lamentation, 
But when it's put in the context of Acts, you can see it's also about Jesus' exaltation and how, how he's gathering all nations because we know it's through his humiliation that he's actually exalted. So we have so much going on here. Jesus, by forsaking blood descendants and being humiliated on the cross, is actually given the largest family ever. And that includes, as we're about to see, this Ethiopian eunuch. Now I just want to step back again and note one thing that this teaches us about the gospel. Maybe as Christians, the message that we have heard has become so rote, so routine, so regular that it's, it's, it's easy for us to overlook the shock and surprise of our message. The Christian message is one of the most surprising things in the whole world because at the center of our faith is a Roman cross. At the center of our faith is Jesus' humiliation, his shame, his substitution for us. At the center of our faith is the reality that God came down to us and suffered on our behalf. It's not surprising in the sense that the Old Testament doesn't predict it. We're seeing that right now. It's surprising in the sense that God's plan to heal and restore the whole world would include the reality that the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh and die the most shameful death ever. That is shocking. And again, we've heard this message so much that we forget. That is shocking. That's surprising. One person said, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. That's true. The only major religion to say our God is one who came to us and suffered on our behalf. That's surprising. Tim Keller said it this way. God is so committed to your ultimate joy that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself for you. That's the Christian message. It's not only the death of Christ, but the mode of the death of Christ, which can be so offensive. It is an offensive death. The meaning of the cross lies not only in the physical suffering, which was terrible, but in Jesus' rejection, in its shame. The cross was the ultimate disgraceful, no grace in it, except a lot of grace in it, event where a person was made to suffer naked in front of everyone until their last breath was spent. It was only reserved for the most lower class people. And our God came and submitted himself to that. That is why Paul says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They look at it and they say, this doesn't make any sense. Why would God do this? And for a broken and hurting and dismantled world, that is one of the most powerful messages we have. That is the most powerful message we have. That Jesus Christ came and he died upon the cross. He came to us and experienced suffering and shame on our behalf. This is the center of our message. And the eunuch meets Jesus in a text from the Old Testament that says, Who is this? Is this the prophet or is this about someone else? And Philip says, that's, that's the center of the gospel, the cross of Christ, that he became the sacrificial lamb on your behalf. And now we see what, how the eunuch responds. A surprising baptism in 8, 36 through 40. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's water. 
What would keep me from being baptized? He's now seeing Jesus Christ as that true suffering servant, and he wants to be baptized. So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Ozotus, and he was travel and as he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So after Philip has met the eunuch, after he has introduced him to Jesus, they come upon some water, and the eunuch asks, asks to be baptized. I love this little detail because remember where they are. They're on the desert road. Water? Like, where did that come from, right? They're on the desert road going down. And Luke is likely thinking of Isaiah here. The prophet Isaiah says, when the spirit is poured out from on high, Acts 2, we just had Pentecost in the narrative, then the desert will become like an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. You see what Luke is doing here? They're on the desert road and they come upon water. Well, the desert is being turned into an orchard, a forest. It says in Isaiah 35, 1, the desert will rejoice and blossom. Water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert will rise up. The new creation is happening. This is what the baptism represents. The spirit has been poured out from on high, and the desert is being turned into a forest. So there's water on the desert road. They came upon water. Oh, look at this. Here's water. I want to be baptized. Then the eunuch asks, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me? So much is going on in this question. So much is going on. In one sense, Philip could look at him and say, everything about you. Everything about you. You're an Ethiopian. You're a eunuch. You're effeminate. You're a treasurer for a different queen. You're not welcome in our temple. Everything about you prevents you from being baptized, from joining us in worshiping Yahweh through Jesus Christ. But Philip recognizes this man has encountered the suffering servant, so he brings him down into the water and he baptizes him. He welcomes him fully into the covenant people of God. The treasure of the south is now a treasurer in God's new temple. He is fully welcomed. Now, again, just to step back, how does this help us? How does this instruct us in our own evangelistic efforts? Uh, Tim Keller made it twice in this sermon. Tim Keller has said, here's another thing from Tim Keller, I found it helpful, has said that a true understanding of the gospel takes away three things in our witness. Three things in our witness. Pride, fear, and pessimism. Takes away pride, fear, and pessimism. And these three things are often what stand in the way of seeing surprising conversions. So first, the gospel takes away pride. Philip could have thought, I don't want to go to him. I don't want to. I'm better than him. I've got more receptive people actually to go to. I don't want to go to him. In the same way, one of the main reasons we are not effective in sharing our faith, maybe, is because there can be a pride, a smugness, an abrasiveness to our message. We wouldn't say this out loud, but sometimes we think we're better or smarter than the person for knowing this truth. We've got something that you don't have, so it makes us superior. But the gospel reminds us we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We aren't better or smarter. That's the point of Christianity. In fact, if we're saved by grace, then we should assume. I find this so helpful, and this is what Keller said. We should assume that the person we are speaking to might be a better person than us. 
They might be a better husband, father, mother, wife, worker. They might be kinder than us. They might be wiser than us. In all these different ways. And that should give us a deference and respect to them. Because we are all in need of grace. We are all in need of grace. We are not any better than anyone. We've just recognized that actually we need a savior. I think in this age we're hesitant to speak of Christ because we don't want to come off as indicating we're superior. And the gospel says you're not superior. That's the point. We all need this message. So the gospel takes away all pride. You should have no pride at the foot of the cross. Second, the spirit reminds us that the gospel takes away fear. Philip, again, could have not followed the angel of the Lord's directive out of fear for how the eunuch would respond. We don't welcome this guy in the Lord's temple. How is he going to respond? How is he going to respond to this message? And in the same way, sometimes we don't speak of Christ because we don't want to be disliked. We don't want to be viewed as a religious fanatic, one of those people. Yo, you're one of those people who are always talking about this and trying to get other people into your thing. I don't like that. We don't want to lose our reputation. We just, we just want to be friends. We don't want to be weird about it. But the Spirit's presence reminds us that we are completely loved, completely accepted, completely forgiven, and fully pleasing to God. You should have no fear. We can feel that fear, but the gospel actually takes away all fear because you are completely accepted by God. You should have no fear of what people think of you. They might hate you, but God, the most important being in the whole universe, loves you completely, fully accepted. So you should have no fear. Third, the Spirit empowers us by, by taking us, and the gospel reminds us it takes away pessimism, all pessimism. We might think, well, that, that person would never listen. That's not, that's not the type of person who wants to hear this message. And again, we wouldn't say that out loud, but we've thought it. That's not the type of person who wants to hear about the gospel, right? But do you recognize what you're saying? Even by thinking that, you're saying there's a type of person that does want to hear it. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is there's no type of person, right? No one wants to hear this, but God calls people. And that God welcomes all sorts of different types of people. There's no type that fits. And you're kind of saying also, I'm the type that might, but they're not. But that, again, is pride or pessimism. This is especially important in this text because in almost every way, the eunuch is not the type of person you would expect to come to the faith. Racially and sexually especially. Racially and sexually. Racially, as already mentioned, he was from North Africa. He was a foreigner. But he was also different sexually. And just I want to pause here at the risk of offending people and just speak to our present moment out of this text because this is actually a really important text for our present moment. He, he's viewed as an effeminate man. Now, this is becoming more and more practical for us as the sexual revolution trudges on. On the positive side, this text does have some implications for how we treat people who have struggled with their gender identity or even maybe those who have gone through some transitions but now are seeking Christ. But now are seeking Christ. Philip welcomes him despite the fact that he was viewed as between the male and female binary at that time. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. You accept Christ. Nothing prevents you. But I also must give a warning here. Some have taken this text and argued it supports, it affirms, it applauds 
this idea of gender transitions or some sort of gender fluidity. But remember, this figure is still called a man. This figure is still called a man. He might be looked at strangely in terms of his cultural fittingness, but he's still considered a man. In addition, he's not pursuing this. It's where he finds himself at the moment. I'm a eunuch. That's who I am. And he looks to Christ and he says, I want to submit my whole life to him. And Philip says, come in. Come into the faith. So this is really important for our current moment to recognize who this figure is and that he is welcome and who this figure is not. I began with the story of Elias Keach who was converted by his own preaching. God loves to surprise us. He loves to do the most unlikely things. He loves to work where we would least think it would happen. In this, he shows us he's doing something in this world that is greater than, than we could ever envision, than we could ever envision. He's calling all people to his side. The Ethiopian eunuch is just a small picture of that. We're going to get other pictures of that as you go through Acts. As you continue to read, you get other pictures of it. And you have to think, in this text, just a few lines down on the Torah scroll is Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. And this is what it says. Isaiah is already predicting that eunuchs will become a part of God's people. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. No foreigner who joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. I have no genealogy. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name. I love that line, a name. What's the name of the eunuch? We don't know. He's called the Ethiopian eunuch. And God says, I will give him a name. You are more than a eunuch. I will give you a name. A name, what? Better than sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? This eunuch is going to have a name better than sons and daughters. Better than Jews themselves. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Never be cut off. Double entendre there, right? They will never be cut off from God's people. They will be welcomed into God's temple. I wonder, I wonder, is there a person in your life who you think, oh, that person would never want to hear this. Oh, that's the last person who would come and accept this message. Or they're the least likely. Maybe it's precisely that person that God is wanting to do a work in. And he's calling you to open your mouth and show them the suffering servant. This text teaches us God loves to work in surprising ways. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the gospel message is true and it's powerful and it continues to convert those who have not seen the beauty of this message. And we pray that that would be true as we go out. We pray that it would be true as we open our mouths and we show people the cross, as we show people what Jesus has done on our behalf. We thank you that you have entrusted us with this message. We thank you that you do surprising and unlikely things, and we pray that you would continue to do that in our day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.